Hello, I'm David Osman. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. With me again today is Helen Thomas of Blonde Money. Our subject for this podcast, the outlook for the UK economy and financial markets. The Independent Research Forum promotes a wide range of high quality and differentiated independent research and alternative data providers from across the world, both micro and macro, some are stock pickers, some sector specific, some country specific, many are global and all are investment related. When Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister last October, UK fiscal policy was in turmoil. UK inflation had spiked above 10% and Brexit was still incomplete. To make matters even worse, last autumn, the international situation remained troubled by climate change concerns, the ramification of the COVID pandemic, a deterioration in Sino-US relations, global supply chain constraints, deglobalization trends, Russia's barbaric war on Ukraine, a spike in worldwide inflationary pressures, and the problems associated with rising interest rates and high bond yields. To reflect on Rishi Sunak's premiership so far, and to assess the outlook for the UK economy and financial markets in the year ahead, I'm very pleased that we're joined today by Helen Thomas, who is the founder and CEO of Blonde Money. Helen Thomas has a distinguished career in both finance and politics. Helen was an advisor to the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne. She had also created the Financial Markets Reform Programme for the Think Tank Policy Exchange. Previously, Helen has been a partner in the global macro hedge fund ABD Investment Management and a former head of Currency Alpha for State Street Global Advisors. She is a CFA charter holder and serves on the UK board of the Chartered Financial Analyst Institute. Helen is also a Freeman of the City of London and has a degree in philosophy, politics and economics from Oxford University. Founded in 2014, Blonde Money is an independent consultancy firm that analyzes and monitors mispriced risk in financial markets in the USA, UK and the EU. This ranges from political risks such as those related to Brexit, China, Russia and the USA, to structural market instabilities such as those created by bank failures or by exchange-traded funds. As CEO, Helen coordinates a team of experienced financial professionals and aspiring analysts who identify and monitor hidden risks in global financial markets. Helen, welcome back. Let's begin with a brief introduction to the advisory service that Blonde Money provides to your various clients. Hello, David. Thank you very much for the time to talk today. So what we do, I like to think of it like the Titanic and why it sank. So the reason the Titanic sank was this amazing, wonderful boat that they set out to sail. They had binoculars on board, but they didn't bring the key for the box which had them in it. We are that key. We are that key. We're going to open up that box, give you the binoculars and make sure you see the hidden icebergs on the horizon. So where we do that, though, is you're all very busy people. You might just need one chart, one picture to tell you where those hidden risks are. And as you said, it's, uh, it's often political risk, but also liquidity risk. 
what is it that people are missing? So that's what we do. From a UK perspective, what aspects of the international environment do you expect to be the most important over the next few months? The main point about the UK outlook, of course, is that we've had this, as you pointed out in the introduction, very tumultuous period. And although it seems a lot calmer, that's really only by, you know, by comparison, because actually, there's still a lot of trouble ahead for Prime Minister Sunak. Uh, And even beyond that, if we can also look at the election, which has to be held by January 2025, but is expected to be held in the second half of next year, could happen before then, it's very unlikely to return a concrete, solid majority for one party. So we've actually got, although it might feel like we had an awful lot of tumultuous times last year, we've got a lot more ahead of us, not least because the economic environment is still extremely uncertain. Um, We are in the foothills at the moment. Another tremor has happened from a financial crisis perspective. Uh, This is something we've written about since March 2021 in a piece called Archegos is the Red Flag, where we've been linking up what happened to the Archegos family office to eventually the demise of Credit Suisse. But there's all these things going on in financial markets, and that's basically payback time for all the huge monetary and fiscal stimulus that went into the market. So what you've got is, in in a way, and people might be surprised to hear this, but the last three years were the easy bit. The next three years are going to be an awful lot harder politically and economically, because all of that monetary and fiscal stimulus, it's all being taken back out of the system, and that is exposing the fractiousness and the changes in this economy that happened in March 2020. It was the recession that couldn't be priced, and now we are going to see it priced in. So that is that is going to cause a, a very rocky period ahead. Did Prime Minister Rishi Sunak inherit a poison chalice from Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, or were things so bad last autumn that they could only get better? And how do you rate his performance as Premier so far? Well, I've got to have full disclosure. I might have told you this before, David, but I did go to university with Mr. Sunak. He was a classmate of mine back in another Oxford PPEist. Yes, we're everywhere. Uh, as indeed was Liz Truss, although uh, older than us. So um, here's the thing. Rishi's going on, trust me, I'm competent. I'm going to get some very specific things done. Uh, and he obviously set that out at the start of the year, and he is acting on that. And he, he is an extremely diligent, very hardworking, detail-oriented person, which is very different, of course, from Truss and Boris. And the thing is, though, that you've got to think about this way with Rishi Sunak. He wants you to know... He got his homework done. And that's what he's been doing. Every single statement we've had from the budget, I know that was presented by Jeremy Hunt, but it's effectively Rishi's budget. From the budget to the small boats policies, we're going to get more on law and order and so on. It's like, I, I want to show you, I've got my head down and I've done the work. Now, the thing about that is that that is only part of what politics is because politics, because I've worked obviously both in politics and business, Uh, I always say business is about what works, politics is about what sells. So, you know, he has to sell what he's doing to the public. And the problem is, you talk about a poison chalice. Basically, the country was already turning against the Johnson administration and the party were falling in the polls. You know, Liz Truss and everything that happened around that 
took it down even further. And in a, in a sense, Rishi Sunak sort of send the bleeding, trying to rebuild a bit. And I'm sure the polls will narrow. They do tend to towards elections. But a lot of damage has been done. And I think, you know, we need to stand back a little bit and go back to that big picture that I was talking about, which is if you were to look back on this period in history 50 years from now and said, oh, well, there was a pandemic once in a century. We were all locked up at home. We couldn't travel. Then we had a war. Then we had inflation, for serious inflation for the first time in 40 years. You would expect huge political turmoil. Frankly, what we're seeing on the streets of France shouldn't just be the French getting angry. You'd be expecting to see an awful lot more people get angry, and that, that is going to come down the line, in fact, because you cannot have such economic turmoil without political turmoil as well. So I think we tend to, you know, we, we have a very short-term media cycle these days. It was always going to be an extremely difficult environment. It was going to require a very skilled leader. And the problem you've got where I'm talking about the public being fractured, fractious, unhappy, frustrated, as as you would well be with all those things, to pull all that together is difficult for the most skilled salespeople of politicians. But most importantly, you need a mandate. You need to have gone to the people and got that backing. And of course, we haven't had that. And that is what is going to hang over this administration uh, and and just make policy making very difficult uh, in the UK. It's a similar problem in other countries, of course, because we have that fractured electorate everywhere. So here's the thing when you have a huge crisis. I remember this from the Eurozone crisis. It's not the crisis that pulls everybody apart. People tend to unite in an emergency. It's the recovery. The recovery exposes people's different opinions, the inequality of what's happened and how things have been distributed. And it's the recovery that splinters that unity. And that's obviously what we've seen from, we've hinted at China, Russia, US, uh, and, and also what happens even within a country and within a party. So we should expect much more of, of this kind of dynamic. There's a suggestion that the next general election could be held in the autumn of 2024, Do you expect Rishi Sunak to lead the Conservative Party into that election? Yes, but we have done a core piece of work on this to see the risk that he doesn't, because it's not a zero probability, Uh, astonishing as that might seem perhaps to some people looking at this from the outside. Because the thing is, as I say, he hasn't got a mandate from the country. He hasn't got a mandate from his party membership. He's barely got a mandate from his own party because it didn't actually ever go to a vote. We know that he got over the 100 you know, supporter threshold, but that still means two-thirds of Conservative MPs, or it was about half in the end, but a half of them didn't explicitly back him, which is quite a lot for your own party. What we have done is created a Rishi rating for each and every MP. That way we can see the distribution of support for Rishi Sunak within his own party. And what we've found from those ratings, which we got from a quantitative set of criteria, this isn't just what we reckon about people, this is their voting record, their position on various issues, various quantitative criteria, things like their majority, etc. Put that all together for a Rishi rating. You can see he has got a chunk of, you know, he's got a solid support of around a third of his party, but he has about 20% who are very much against him. And in the middle, there's kind of these 100 MPs who are, you might want to say, ambivalent or more, more rather they could be pulled in one direction or the other. 
And that was a risk for Theresa May. It was a risk for Boris Johnson, which he got over because he won an election. It was a risk for Liz Truss. And it's, it's now a risk for Rishi Sunak. So we, we, what we can see there is it might sound insane, but there are a group within his own party that are still against him. And if we look at that Brexit vote recently about the Windsor framework, now we predicted there would be between 17 and 20 votes against which was based on these Rishi ratings. There were 22 votes against in the actual vote. This has been heralded as some kind of triumph for Rishi Sunak, although, as you can see, it's well within what we would have expected. But what's more relevant, that wasn't covered in a lot of the press, was the number of abstentions. Uh, there was a high number of abstentions. And in British politics, it's quite hard to know why somebody's abstaining. Sometimes they are not there for the vote. They're paired up with another MP who's absent or on maternity leave. It was a bit muddying the water because there were some very loyal MPs who were in the abstention column. But with our ratings, we could go through and look at those abstentions and say, look, there's about 24 MPs who were going to vote against you, but they abstained. Now, that was a great job of whipping those people into line. But what it does is, is it hides the real discontent because that means there's 46 of his own MPs were against him. And, uh, you know, he only has a working majority of 66. So despite all the excitement that this looked like a great victory he's still on shaky ground and he needs to conduct a very solid whipping operation to keep his uh, agenda on track and that's what I mean about us looking out for the icebergs with our quantitative analysis because it's not possible to know who those MPs are or what the numbers are unless you do that work. One of his most important achievements uh, arguably was uh, when he came into office he and Chancellor Jeremy Hunt quickly stabilised fiscal policy and the UK bond markets, even though that disappointed some of the Conservatives who wanted to see early tax cuts. But if we look beyond fiscal policy and look at what the Bank of England is doing, would you say that when it comes to monetary policy, the Bank of England is ahead of the curve or behind the curve when it comes to maintaining financial stability and to controlling inflation without creating a recession. They're on the curve, I would say. There have been points over the last couple of years where they've been a bit behind and a bit ahead. I mean, let's not forget, they were the first ones to start hiking uh, ahead of the Fed and the ECB, but then they never quite sped up when they should have done. But here's the thing. I mean, that tumult of October last year, because it's now tied to the hands of fiscal policy, basically... Jeremy Hunt is constantly making sure his sums add up, sometimes through a bit of mathematical chicanery in terms of things like changing retirement ages or moving spending from one fiscal year to the next to make sure he meets his fiscal rules. But I mean, all chancellors do that, of course, but more important for him than most because of credibility being so important to this administration. But basically, the fiscal side has got its hands tied. They feel because of that mess, they can't do anything. Now, by the way, I go back to that point about politics being what sells. You could prosecute a different argument if you had a mandate. Now, Liz Trust tried to make the argument, didn't do it in a sensible way and at a terrible moment, because obviously it was a moment when bond market yields were going up everywhere. But before we get bogged down into that, the Bank of England are having to do all the work. So really, it depends on what happens to inflation in the UK in 12 months' time. The doves on the MPC, I mean, Silvana Tenreiro has made a very strong argument that 
it's cumulative, it lags. The people switching off their fixed rate deals this year, you know, I think it's a good two or three million people will eventually be switching at mortgage rates, are yet to feel the hit. So they may have done enough. Then you've got Catherine Mann, who has been this extremely outspoken hawk, saying it's not enough. You've got to bear down on the expectations element of inflation and you've got to keep going. And then sort of Andrew Bailey's been mucking around in the middle trying to form a consensus. But yes, the, the issue they're going to face, actually all Western economies are going to face this over the next 12 to 24 months, is how stagflationary is their economy? Because how sticky is the inflation element and can you get any growth? Now, we've just said you can't do anything with fiscal policy. You not actually can't do that anywhere, in fact, because of this fractiousness of politics. It's very hard to get anything passed in the US Congress. You can't get anything done in France. It's difficult in Germany, a three-party coalition. So fiscal policy is really stuck. So monetary is, is doing all the heavy lifting. And the point is they don't know. It is variable and lagged, the effect of monetary policy. But they have to err on the side of doing too much because just imagine what a mess they're going to be in if we've still got inflation and they haven't done the interest rate rises that they've done. So remember, you know, central bankers are politicians too. They also have to sell their argument and, you know, they're not they're not clear that it's done yet. So I think that the, the thing that you have to think about for the UK is how much natural inflation does the UK economy have? And the issue for the Bank of England and for the government will be just how sticky is it in the UK? Because it's obviously going to come down mathematically due to base effects. But then we're going to have to ask ourselves, well, what's the difference between 4% inflation and 5% inflation? The point is, it's still far above the 2% target. Um, and that is the reality that the world's going to have to face in the next 6 to 12 months. If the Bank of England is currently back on the curve... And when we think about the importance of the US economy to the outlook for global financial markets, how do you see US and UK bond yields moving in the year ahead, particularly in something like the 10-year government bond yield? Well, we now have that financial stability element that you threw into the last question, of course, because the tremors of the withdrawal of liquidity from the financial system are starting to get bigger and radiate wider. We will see more of that, but again, probably not for another six months or so, simply because a bit more liquidity has been injected in the system, a bit more time has been bought by the Fed's intervention on its uh, new, its latest alphabet soup of programs. What is it? The BTFP, um, Bank Term Funding Program. So I think this is where we've got so many counterbalancing forces. We've got Growth, it's going to definitely be higher in the US than the UK. Then you've got inflation. It will probably be coming down more in the US than the UK. What does that actually mean for bond yields, though? Because the UK version is going to be quite stagflationary. And it's going to be a bit of a roller coaster ride for the US. I think the Fed have to stay the course, keep being hawkish. And that means all else equal you will see US 10-year yields remain relatively elevated. But then you've got this short-term wobbles that we're going to have. I mean, I think the point here is they're obviously trying to separate out financial stability response to the macroeconomic response. And the Bank of England have the playbook on this, or think they do. I mean, the Bank of Canada have been talking about how they loved the response that they did the gilt market interventions. There seems to be this belief that you can go in and buy bonds again, 
but it's not QE as long as you sell them quickly. Now, the Bank of England did manage to do that fairly quickly. They sold them all out again in January for a profit. But that was, frankly, as much by luck as by design, and it's going to be much harder for any other central bank to do that in the future when we're going to have dominoes and the house of cards all falling down on one another in the months to come. So I suppose this is an extremely long-winded way of saying I think you want to own, I think you even at these levels still want to own volatility on US interest rates. I know the move index is extremely high. So I think you probably get a chance to it'll pull back over the next three months. But I reckon that come October you want to be long of bond market volatility again. Given all these uncertainties and complexities, both international and domestic, are you bullish or bearish about the outlook for US and UK stock markets over the next 12 months or so? Bearish on the US, what we're seeing is a reversal of the speculative froth that came out of that huge monetary and fiscal injection. So we've had Archegos fall over, FTX disappear, the London Metal Exchange basically went bust, but they cancelled all the nickel trades so they could try and claim it didn't. The gilt market blow up, the LDIs, uh, obviously now Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse, and there's more as well, but these are all just part of the same story. And remember, those early ones I mentioned happened when there was still liquidity going into the system. So I had you know, a hedge a family office that, frankly, not that many people knew about, managed to gouge $6 billion out of Credit Suisse when it failed. I mean, that was a red flag for anybody. But we're going to get more of this sort of thing. So then you have to look at the S&P 500 and say, well, frankly, the run-up since October last year, that needs to come off out of the system at least, if not a bit more, particularly as what we haven't yet seen, but we will see, is another dash for cash, as the Bank of England called the March 2020 situation. People just say, it's too uncertain. I don't know what's happening. I don't like what's going on. It feels wobbly. I'm just getting out. I'll get back in later. And that, we will get that. That will be the end. That will be the big moment, but we haven't got there yet. So that's why I'm I'm bearish on the US stock market. The UK stock market, somewhat the same, but a lower beta. Now, the reason I say it is because the US stock market is where, and I've talked about this a number of times over the last 10 years, is where the option market players play in equity land without getting too much into the weeds of it. There's basically all you need to know is, is the market long or short gamma in the S&P 500? If they're long gamma, it means the market is quite range bound. If they're short, it means you have convexity. So when it drops, people sell and when it rises, people buy exacerbating the issue. And that's when you can get the real spin out of control situation. Now, we're not actually quite there at the moment in the S&P 500, but that, that moment will come. But it's it's a far bigger, and it's all related to the VIX. It's all related to the way people manage their risk. It's all related to market makers have made a lot of money for years just selling volatility, the classic carry trade, picking up pennies in front of the steamroller. But when the moment comes, as they say, on a carry trade, you'll get carried out. So that's why it'll be bigger in the US than the UK. Helen, thank you for this most valuable insight into the advisory service that is provided by Blonde Money. With more time, it would be interesting to discuss in greater detail your views on the longer term outlook for the UK economy. 
in addition, it would be interesting to hear more about your views on the global outlook, particularly with respect to China, Russia and the USA. The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the Blonde Money service and can provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available on request from the Independent Research Forum. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with Helen Thomas, the CEO of Blonde Money. Music